Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. Today I'm going to be talking about the original Bayonetta, a game that came out about ten years ago, but I only played it for the first time these last few weeks. Platinum Games first released Bayonetta in 2009 for Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. It was one of Platinum Games' earlier titles, and it really tells you what you need to know about Platinum as developers. Fast-paced action gameplay, where you're ranked on your performance for individual fights and then the overall level, and a big focus on style and over-the-top spectacle. Most of their subsequent games would bear these same ideas. Bayonetta was acclaimed by many, though more for the 360 version than the PlayStation 3 version. Director Hideki Kamiya actually considers PlayStation 3 Bayonetta to be the one big failure of his career, or the only failure of his career. I'm not quite sure what the specifics are. Bayonetta wasn't really a huge game in my reckoning, more of a cult classic. Not that it stopped the title character from making a playable appearance in Anarchy Reigns, which is one of Platinum's later games. She also appeared, along with two other characters from this game, as bonus characters in the Platinum and Nintendo game The Wonderful 101. And then, the big one, the fact that she joined the Super Smash Bros. roster as the final DLC character in the fourth game, before coming back for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. It's not like a Shovel Knight situation where it's just one game that really caught on. The game did get a sequel in 2014, and there is a third Bayonetta game on the way, so it might not be really accurate to say that Bayonetta's a cult classic anymore. It might just be a, a plain old classic. It's a series, the, the Bayonetta franchise. We'll have a Bayonetta trilogy. I'm sure once they release the next Nintendo console, they'll put all three Bayonetta games in the same package again. I remember hearing the name Bayonetta, getting a description of what the game would be like, and my squeamish teenage self didn't like uh, the idea of a game with these sensibilities. The main character, Bayonetta, is very conventionally attractive, almost as if she was designed specifically to tick every box on a list of how to entice the audience. She's got a slender frame, long legs, a playfully dominant personality. She's got a beauty mark. She's got glasses. She's got an English accent. The fact that technically she kind of takes her clothes off for special attacks. It's all that kind of stuff. And me, I'm never really comfortable with that kind of territory. So a game that really puts it in the forefront just kind of made me go, ew. But over the time, I've kind of become more open-minded, and really, the Smash Brothers stuff made me interested in checking the game out, so here I am, playing the game ten years later. What really helps me, at least, and I think a lot of people feel the same, is that Bayonetta is really over-the-top. She's not just over-the-top in the action way, but all the attractive qualities they tried adding to her are just so overdone and in-your-face that it just feels more like a joke than anything else. I, 
it's like trying so hard to be attractive that it goes back around to just being weird and it cancels out all the sexiness and stuff. It's an interesting threshold to breach, but it's actually really nice. I read about this a little before playing the game and after playing the game, and I agree with it that Bayonetta as a character is really tough and strong, and while a lot of quote-unquote strong female characters try to eschew all traits of femininity, Bayonetta embraces her femininity, and she still manages to be tough and always come out on top and have a ball with whatever she's doing. I think that makes for a really interesting and admirable character. But I wouldn't know any of this for a long time. Like I said, it was mostly through the Super Smash Bros. appearance that I got interested in Bayonetta, like most people who weren't already on board with the game. And then, after playing as her in Super Smash Bros. and kind of knowing who she was but not really enough to care, I eventually decided to finally pick up Bayonetta 2 because I did have a Nintendo Wii U. I picked up the game and I just couldn't get into it. I had an idea of what to expect. I've played other Platinum games, so I knew that there would be a lot of craziness, but this one just took the cake. I was really overwhelmed. I felt like they started off at a 10, and I need my games to start off closer to maybe a 5 or a 6 on the crazy scale. No, this one just really throws everything at you. It was about five or six chapters in before I just, like, I, I can't do this, I can't keep going, I can't keep up with this game. And I eventually sold it. Then suddenly, cut to earlier this year, I find myself buying Bayonetta 2 again, but for Nintendo Switch. This time it came with a download code for Bayonetta 1. Why did I buy it? Well... For all my misgivings, I felt a little bit bad about not committing to the game, so I wanted to try it again. And I had the money, so everything just seemed to line up for it. And then, of course, I stalled. I put it off for quite a while. I think it was February when I bought it, and I didn't start playing it until mid-late April. Didn't actually get to playing the second game until the 1st of May. And, as I might have just implied, I decided to actually play the games in order this time. Start with the first game, and then maybe that would give me more of an appreciation of the second game. And you know what? It's working. And on top of that, the first game is pretty fun. Platinum Games games are designed very open-endedly, so you can still enjoy them regardless of difficulty. You can power through them on the easy settings and feel like a god, or you can pick the hard settings and explore the nuances of the game's design philosophies. This sounds like pretty obvious stuff, but I feel like action games are one of the genres where this is best put into effect, the different difficulties. Granted, it's not all-inclusive. I do happen to know about certain features that are blocked off from the player on the easier settings, like the Alfheim portals and the Umbran Crows, stuff like that. They must have changed that for the sequel, because I'm playing on the same setting, and I'm running into all that stuff now in the second game. 
This is just my personal opinion, but playing on an easy difficulty setting strikes me as the experience that would put you in Bayonetta's shoes the most, since she almost never breaks a sweat. She's cocky and acts superior to every giant angelic monster in her way, and rightfully so. She very well can and will smash them to pieces with only token effort, which translates to how I'd feel playing a game on easy difficulty. I can deal with everything and only give a token effort. In the years, people have hyped up Bayonetta to be this awesome, mega-powerful person, not even getting into how overpowered she was in Smash Bros. 4. So I expected, frankly, an unbeatable dynamo of a character. And I got one. It was great. Really, it reminds me of playing a Warriors game. Bayonetta would thrive in one of those. Which might be part of the reason she was included in Anarchy Reigns. It's kind of a similar genre, but not exactly. Sure, someone would probably tell me I'm not getting the real Bayonetta experience, or that I missed out because I didn't see all the stuff that happens on the harder difficulties, or all the bonus bosses, and maybe, but I try to be a proponent of encouraging people to play how they want, and for games to come in multiple difficulties, so I'm not really going to let that get in the way of my enjoyment of Bayonetta. I still walked out of the game having fun, and I can always play it again a different way if I wanted to, so I didn't really lose anything. To get off my soapbox there, a lot of the game's craziness comes from the Witch Walk ability. This allows Bayonetta to walk on walls and ceilings as long as there's moonlight. So I unintentionally kept calling it the Moon Walk. I guess someone was paying attention to Mario Galaxy a couple years earlier. But the Witch Walk facilitates insanely dynamic fight scenes, thanks to the very premise. There's also Witch Time, Bayonetta's ability to slow down time as she dodges attacks, giving you free reign to pile on the damage to an enemy that just missed you. This is probably my favorite skill in the whole game, and something I wouldn't mind seeing in more action games. The Wonderful 101 brings it back as Hero Time, but otherwise I haven't seen many likewise abilities. Witch Time is also used on a larger scale to create timed sequences, where Bayonetta needs to accomplish certain tasks before time returns to normal. And as good attention to detail, she can't activate the standard dodge-based Witch Time during these. This can and will be used in conjunction with the Witch Walk, so you're doing all these crazy geometrically impossible fight scenes in bullet time. I believe one of the first major boss fights does that very thing. She's standing on falling debris and then uses witch time to lengthen the debris' time in the air so she can make the most of the battle arena that she has for this fight. It's a really neat way for Bayonetta to synergize her skills. I've probably relied on witch time more often than I needed to or should have. I was telling one of my friends and past guests, Alfalfa, about the fact that I was playing this game and stuff, and he warned me that some of the enemies disable witch time or they're immune to it, but I was stomping through the game so effortlessly that I never even noticed that someone was immune to it. If I was playing on one of the higher difficulties, I'm sure I would have felt that sting.
One more thing that contributes to a lot of the insanity is Bayonetta's finishing moves. At the cost of magic, Bayonetta can immediately kill certain angels by conjuring torture devices and putting them through the ringer. And for larger bosses, she'll give some kind of Enochian incantation, and all her clothing and hair will transform into the body parts of giant monsters, will maul the enemy. I think these are the climax attacks. And they're really satisfying to see because the music flares up into a piece called Let's Hit the Climax, which is basically Bayonetta's unofficial theme song. At least it is in Smash Brothers. This is a very silly game, if you haven't noticed from all the stuff I'm saying about it. She wears guns on her shoes for extra firepower. There is a plot... The characters do have goals and feelings, and the stakes do rise near the end. But I forgot all of that while I'm busy going from one crazy action scene to the next. As far as I'm concerned, this is just... Crazy awesome action. The game. That makes the game fun and enjoyable. I love camp as much as the next person, but I think it also comes to the detriment of the story and all that kind of stuff. To be honest, I never fully understood what the story of the game was about until maybe more than halfway through. So Bayonetta is an Umbra witch. They're kind of the old guard of the world, I suppose. Opposite of the Lumen Sages. They, they, they do the same thing, but with light. Well, she's dark, I guess. She's the last of her kind. She woke up 20 years ago in a lake without memories and it's all but stated that she's actually ancient. Now she kills angels and lets demons harvest their bodies so that she doesn't get dragged into the demon world, Inferno. She'll eventually go there anyway, but I guess this delays the inevitable, or something. And Bayonetta is okay with all of this, it seems. She's having the time of her life killing these things. Angels aren't friendly-looking fellas with wings or or any, like, golden dove knights, either. They're weird-looking monsters with oddly-positioned human faces. Like, this big one is a giant upside-down face with two dragon heads coming off its forehead or something. This is said to be actually closer to the original description of what an angel would look like. So, they did their homework here. Also, the angels aren't really friendly to humans at all. Reality is divided between the angels in Paradiso, the demons in Inferno, and the humans. There's also a neutral ground called Purgatorio, which is parallel to the human plane, but you can hop into it if you're a supernatural being and have fights without bothering the villagers, I guess. So, Purgatorio, Paradiso, Inferno, you got your Danteisms, and all this lore is kind of stuff that you figure out early on, stuff that the game tells you early on. I was able to follow all of that. Now, into the actual plot, though. Bayonetta's doing her thing, and I guess she hears a hot tip about the black market. There's a pair of jewels called the Eyes of the World, and... I guess she wants one or something. She catches a flight to the city of Vigrid, which 
is very holy and overrun with angels, and it's somewhere in Europe. I don't remember the sequence of events that prompted all this. I'm sure I could figure it out if I replayed the game, but the point remains that the plot was a little murky. Even as it went on, there were elements that I didn't fully understand. I could make some educated guesses, but I still feel like the game didn't really give me enough to work with. Unless it's one of those situations where the lore is hidden away and all the details to the side. Very well might be, because I come across a lot of world-building author's notes in the levels. I didn't read all of them, though, because I'll, I'd rather play the game and you know get through the levels and all that kind of stuff. Beat up the angels. I don't want to stop and read an entire essay every ten minutes. Besides, I think if something is really important, then... It would be made clear to the player and not just brushed off under the rug. Maybe a second playthrough would help me understand everything better, but I wasn't in it for the story anyway. I just wanted to have fun, go through the motions with the action, and I got it. On the subject of the game not explaining enough, though, there are quick time events. In a game stuffed with action sequences, a few of them decide to throw button prompts at you, and they're on screen for maybe half a second, and you instantly die if you fail these prompts. More often than not, at least. The time window is so unforgiving that there are times where I even did press the button just before the prompt disappeared, but the game still went, nope, you missed it, you're too slow. The deaths hurt your overall score and just ruined my good mood, so I didn't care for those parts very much. I've heard that other people felt the same, so, so many people felt it, to the point where Bayonetta 2 gets rid of most, if not all, of these sequences, or at least recontextualizes them as bonus point opportunities instead of death-defying lifelines. I've played a little bit of the second game now since beating the first one, and so far that seems to be the case. Another instance of mandating fast reflexes is when you encounter a new angel. You're given a brief cutscene to introduce them every time you meet a new one, but the problem is that they often end the cutscene by doing an attack, and that carries into gameplay, so you have to dodge almost instantly. It's not ruinous, at least not on lower difficulties, but that seems like a bit of a questionable choice. Again, this seems like something that got adjusted in the sequel, at least for as far as I've played. It's good to know that as stubborn as Hideki Kamiya is, he's willing to listen to some complaints at least. I know that he heard that people didn't like the Space Harrier sequence in this game, so just out of spite, he added a Space Harrier sequence in Wonderful 101. Though I actually like the Space Harrier part of this game, so I don't really mind. Actually, I don't know how thoroughly involved he was with the sequel. I'm going to have to actually look that up. Going back to some of the issues I had with the story, though, I could name a few more instances of of things that weren't explained very well, a lot of them being plot twists near the end. And this is a ten-year-old game, so I'm not going to worry too much about spoilers, but just, just to be polite, spoiler warning. And, you know, maybe someone's playing it for the first time because it's on Switch and Ultimate came out and Bayonetta was in there. Anyway, 
It's explained that Bayonetta's old friend and current rival, Jean, is the one who put her in a 500-year coma before Bayonetta woke up 20 years ago. I don't really remember if it's explained why or how she did that. Different question I have is the nature of Cereza being in this story at all. Bayonetta meets this little girl early on, and she grows attached to her in a motherly way, and they finally meet the bad guy, and he reveals that Cereza is just a version of Bayonetta from the past. He, he wanted Bayonetta to remember her child self because she had amnesia, and I, I don't know why she was supposed to remember herself. Something to do with the fact that Bayonetta herself is one of the eyes of the world? Like, like, she and he together are the eyes of the world. They're not actually gems. So I, I wonder how that rumor even started or how that even works. H how they can be the eyes of the world. I don't get that part either. They, they answered my question with introducing a new question and not even answering the first question in the process. I'm sure some of this or all of it, I'm sure this is explained somewhere, but a lot of the fine points just escape me. I'm sure this is explained somewhere, but a lot of the fine print just escapes me. And again, I don't know how he got his hands on child Bayonetta, unless we write that off as Lumen Sage magic. Also, the bad guy claims to be Bayonetta's father, and that seems like a cheap movie plot twist, like they're making fun of the Darth Vader thing or something but the game plays it completely straight, so I feel like I'm supposed to take it seriously, and not just as the game's usual silliness. In Baldur's defense, though, I hear that the second game does a lot to give him better characterization and stuff, so I'm gonna wait and see what I think of that. Also, let's go back to Jean. I never really got what she was doing. For most of the game, she antagonizes you, you have a few fights with her, she buzzes off, rinse and repeat a few chapters later. She's colluding with the angels too, until s suddenly she's not. Balder mentions that he got Jean to cooperate with them. I think she was mind-controlled, but I don't remember getting a concrete explanation on that, but suddenly she shows up near the very end to help Bayonetta, and... I remember they were blatantly friends in what little of the sequel I did play at the time, so th there's something going on there. Also, I guess the fact that she's an Umbra witch is supposed to be a surprise, but I knew that going into it, so that probably didn't help a bit. That's part of the curse of playing a game ten years late. Different issue I had was with the game's pacing. It's a short game, and I'm okay with that. Where I'm going with this is that each of my sessions with the game was capped off with one of the boss-only levels, where you battle one of the cardinal virtues, and I noticed that some of them had more build-up than others. Before you fight Fortitudo, you travel through, I think, three levels of solid length, but then there are only two levels before the next boss stage, Temperentia, though they were pretty long stages. Then there's three stages before the third boss. Then there's one stage between the third and fourth boss. And that fourth and that one stage didn't feel very long. Then after the fourth boss you have the Space Harrier stage, and while I enjoyed it, 
I think the fight with Jean at the end should have been a separate stage. You get one more long stage, which features appearances by all the Cardinal Virtues again. Then there's another boss-only stage, and then there's the final boss stage. They don't wait long enough between the big boss stages, I think. This also might just be me, but I expect these stages to mark turning points in the story, or at least turning points for the premise at hand, and they don't. It's more like the boss just interrupts whatever story was already happening at the time. Maybe it's on me for expecting them to go differently, but it just made the plot muddle together for me. Like it was a random series of events until they finally decided, okay, boss time, and they just did this a few times until they just ran out of ideas and pulled out the big guns for the ending. Going back to the positives, I think the characters are one of the game's strengths. There aren't a lot of characters to go around, and two of them are just the same character from different time periods. But Bayonetta is every bit as fun as I wanted her to be, Cereza is adorable. She's so tiny! Just look at her in like the gameplay sequences where you have to escort her. She's just a little thing that just waddles after you and looks up to you, literally. I'll also say that Cereza is very good for humanizing Bayonetta. We never really get into our title character's head, so it's a treat to get a break from our constant arrogance and joviality, even if those are fun in their own right. And, and Luca, he's pretty enjoyable. I wasn't really sure what to expect from him because I'd played the second game and he was flirty in there. I, I got far enough to meet him in that game. We first meet him in this game and he hates Bayonetta, so I thought that was a really weird turnaround. But then, seeing him develop through this game, I was like, oh, okay, I can see how he got to that point now. And I could listen to Rodan read the phone book for hours and not get bored with it. Dave Fenoy, he's great. Balder and Jean are too wrapped up in mystery for me to entirely appreciate their characters, but I feel like the sequel might do a bit better in that regard, so I'm not gonna hold it against them yet. The Virtues show up for a fight and then die, and this one required a bit of reading after the fact, but it was interesting to learn that the Cardinal Virtues consistently battled and behaved in ways that contradicted their identities. That really helps hammer the idea that angels aren't really nice guys. This isn't your typical angels good, demons bad setting. This is kind of a everything goes, every side for itself thing. And I wanted to see more of that crime boss guy, Enzo. He seemed ripe for sidekick antics, but... That position was given to Luca instead. I really don't know who Enzo is, even, now that I think of it. I, I remembered him from Bayonetta 2, so I was hoping he had a large presence. He had a fun dynamic being an allegedly scary criminal who's completely out of his depth among all these supernatural superhumans. Almost like Mr. Satan in Dragon Ball Z, how he's a legit master martial artist, who just so happens to pale in comparison to Goku and everyone. Now let's get into today's favorite songs. This game has a pretty good soundtrack, so I'd recommend checking it out if you could. All the Bayonetta music in Smash Bros. are direct ports from this game, with the exception of changing some songs to instrumental remixes. I'm fond of The Gates of Hell, which is the background music for Rodon's Bar of the same name, 
It's very relaxing, and makes me wish I spent more time in there in the game. But honestly, I just didn't have much of a need. Another favorite is Red and Black, the boss theme for Jean's fights. It has the usual pomp and flair that most Bayonetta action music tends to have, but with a bit of an urgent undertone to it. That's good for indicating the fact that Jean isn't like the rabble. She's equal to Bayonetta in almost every way. There's even a more dramatic version of the song. I think it's called Blood and Darkness. And that plays during the final fight with Jean. Which kind of reminds me of what they do in Wonderful 101, where your rival character is Vorkin, and you get a boss theme for his fights, and then a more dramatic version for the final fight with him. The third favorite is Cereza's theme. It's just a nice, happy song, really peaceful, a good breather for most of the rest of the craziness in the game. I like the song even more after someone pointed out to me how it sounds like something from Fire Emblem Awakening or Fates. Composer Ray Kondo was involved in Bayonetta and the Fire Emblem games, I think Fates specifically, so who knows, maybe it's a bit of a trademark. And it would be sinful to talk about Bayonetta music and not give any attention to their rendition of Fly Me to the Moon. It's remixed a little to better suit the aesthetic of the game, a bit faster, more overall resembling the other Bayonetta tracks, new vocalist. It replaces the battle theme in fights that are significant to Bayonetta herself, most triumphantly in the final stage. I kind of prefer it to the original Sinatra version, mainly because I'm biased towards energetic music. Not to disrespect Frank Sinatra's music at all. I, I, I know people take his music very seriously. I've heard tell of people getting shot for singing his songs poorly at karaoke. No disrespect at all to Sinatra. But I might prefer the game's version of the song. And that's it for Bayonetta. It only took me an entire decade to get around to playing it. Well, it won't be that long before I play the sequel. I've already started. I already can tell that I have more of an appreciation for the game after coming through this first one than I did back then when I just played it by itself. And you know, it, it's kind of to be expected. Huh, playing a game called Bayonetta 2. Maybe you're gonna miss something if you don't play the first one. Well, I played No More Heroes 2 before playing the first one, and I was fine there. I didn't feel too lost or out of my depth. I just happened to bet on the wrong horse with Bayonetta. Anyway, stay up to date with the show by following it on Twitter. It's the BitCast. You could see me posting about Bayonetta in the weeks leading up to this if you were following me, so the Twitter page is a good way to figure out what I might be interested in doing episodes about. If you want to stick around for that Bayonetta 2 episode or see what else I've talked about, you can find all the BitCast episodes on Podcast One's website and app, also on iTunes. And with that, I'll see you on the next one. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.